KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. A report from onboard the new Blue Line trolley. The, the rail extension really has the potential to reshape commute patterns a lot. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Who's gotten a COVID booster shot? San Diego releases the statistics. The CDC has actually simplified that a bit to say that anybody can get a booster if enough time has passed. Do problems at the San Diego Crime Lab put convictions in jeopardy? And in anticipation of Comic-Con's revival, we visit a local comic book store that survived the pandemic. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. San Diego's biggest expansion of public transit in more than 15 years is now up and running. The Blue Line Trolley now offers a one-seat ride from the border to UCSD and University City. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen examines the impact that extension could have and the work that's still left to do. Service on the extended UCSD Blue Line began on Sunday, but last week, MTS offered the media a preview ride. It was fast and smooth, with some excellent views you can't get while driving. Full disclosure, I've been looking forward to this trolley ride for a long time. And it's hard to understate just how big a deal the project is. Nine new stations and 11 miles of new tracks. That's a 20% increase in the MTS trolley network. We are so excited about this project! (laughs) Sharon Humphreys is the bubbly director of engineering and construction at SANDAC, the regional transportation agency that built the trolley extension. She says the project has been planned since the 1980s. I myself have worked on the project for the last 10 years, so if you are interested in instant gratification, civil engineering is not the field for you. One of the key decisions made early on was to build the tracks next to the I-5 freeway. That made the project cheaper and easier to build by limiting the amount of land Sandag had to acquire. Nobody wants to part with their personal property, their land. So by running most of the project through public lands, we were able to avoid impacting property owners and impact personal property. The downside to that decision, half the land that surrounds many of the stations is taken up by the freeway, where there's no chance of building new housing or commercial development. Even where the city does have plans for transit-oriented growth, they'll likely take years to come to fruition. You know, when we look around, uh, we don't see the kind of 
dense housing here that we, we might hope for. Katie Christ is a postdoctoral researcher at UCSD. The campus has two new stops along the Blue Line. She's starting a study of how the new trolley changes the transportation habits among university staff. And what we expect is that we'll see an increase in physical activity, an increase in biking, walking, transit trips. Uh, and a decrease in vehicle miles traveled among those people that live near to a trolley stop versus those that live further away. Christ plans on riding the trolley to campus a couple times a week. She lives in Normal Heights, miles and canyons away from the nearest trolley stop, but she's a gung-ho cyclist and transit rider, eager to get to the trolley however she can. The extension starts at Old Town and runs north between Pacific Beach and Claremont before reaching UCSD and University City. So yeah, if we wait till we have all these cars to be yeah. by us. Christ and I rode our bikes up and down Balboa Avenue, the third stop on the trolley extension. Let's cross at the crosswalk. Oh my gosh. Massive trucks zoomed by us like it was a freeway. Many of the new stations are downright hazardous to access by foot, wheelchair, or bike. And Christ says most people who live far from these stations won't go out of their way to ride the trolley. There are plans to improve bike and pedestrian infrastructure around the stations, but there's no clear timeline on when they'll be complete, and they may require taking a lane or two away from cars. Christ says she doesn't see another option. We've set some really ambitious targets, right, with our climate action plan. We know that transportation is the biggest contributor to greenhouse gases that are warming the planet and causing, uh, you know, public health harm. So I think that that is a trade-off we have to be willing to make. So the benefits of the new trolley may take a while to reach most San Diegans. But UCSD Chancellor Pradeep Kosla says he thinks the trolley will really catch on with students within a year. We have passes for all of our students. It's part of their student activity fees. So the students will have complete access to San Diego without a car. Or rather, access to the parts of San Diego you can easily get to via public transit. Joining me is KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen, who obviously can't get enough of the Blue Line trolley. He's riding the <laughs> trolley again today. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Maureen. Good morning. How is it getting from your house to the trolley this morning? I, I live in University Heights, and I, I wanted to experience it, you know, without driving. So I rode my bike uh, through Hillcrest, Mission Hills. It was a really beautiful ride. Uh, views of Point Loma and Mission Bay. Uh, went through Presidio Park. Um, once I got to Old Town Station, it was a bit of a struggle just getting to the actual trolley tracks because there are a lot of um, fences and not really clear wayfinding signage. And then um, parking my bike at the station was also a bit of a hassle because there's not a uh, very clearly marked bike parking anywhere. Uh, so, you know, uh, it was a bit of a struggle, um, but a beautiful ride and uh, one that I expect I'll be making, uh, you know, more often in the future. Can you gauge ridership on this first weekday that the trolley is operational? Like, how many people are in your car? I would say there are about 15 to 20 people on the car that I'm riding in right now. I, ha I didn't get a good look at the other two cars that are that are uh, connected to this. Uh, yesterday, uh, in the big grand opening, there were um, cars that were just absolutely packed, uh, you know, standing room only. Uh, and it was also free yesterday, so that I'm sure that had a, played a role in it. MTS, before the pandemic, projected that the extension would add an additional 27,000 trips per day. 
but it hasn't revised those projections since the pandemic hit. Right now, their ridership overall has recovered to only about 65% of what it was pre-pandemic. But of course, these projects are built for literally decades, so you really can't measure the impact just based on a day or even a couple of years. And how long does it take to ride from the border to UCSD? Yeah, this is a big uh, caveat to the selling point of the one-seat ride with no transfers. Uh, So it's roughly an hour and 20 minutes from the border to UCSD. And even on a day like today, with rush hour traffic, uh, you know, that could still be two to three times faster uh, if you just make that uh, via car. Of course, a lot of people around the border and everything don't have cars, so it's nice for them to have that one-seat ride and not having to transfer. Uh, But, you know... Even even though it is a faster and smoother and more convenient ride for a lot of people, it's still uh, probably going to be faster to drive for a lot of people. Now, you and other Metro watchers have been very excited about the opening of the Blue Line. Can you encapsulate for the rest of us why this is such a big deal? Rail infrastructure is really difficult and expensive to build in the United States, partly because it's difficult and expensive to build any mega project. Big infrastructure projects just don't get built as often as they used to be. But partly uh, that's because most of our money goes to building and maintaining roads and freeways. And uh, in San Diego in particular, there's a certain antipathy, I think, toward public transit that you hear among some elected officials. You know, they say that public public transit benefits only a fraction of the population and they should spend uh, more money and more time subsidizing driving. But in terms of the project itself, this actual, uh, you know, 11 new miles of light rail, nine new stations, University City, where this line ends, is a huge employment hub. It's not just UCSD. There are also big office buildings around there, retail at the UTC Mall. Uh, The VA Hospital is a big employer as well. So the, the rail extension really has the potential to reshape commute patterns a lot, but a lot would also have to change in terms of, you know, ways people can get to those stations and the development that happens around them. Yeah, yeah, you mentioned several downsides to the Blue Line trolley extension. And so if enough people can't live near a trolley stop or safely get to and from the trolley, will it really have a significant impact on San Diego? Yeah, I think it really depends on what happens next. So I think we are likely to see plans for denser housing become a reality around some of the new stations. By the way, I'm right between Claremont Drive and Balboa Avenue. I'm looking by uh, at Mission Bay as we go by. And right around here, there are a lot of plans for dense housing. To my left, I'm looking at, uh, I'm heading backwards. To my left, I'm looking at a lot of homes in in Claremont. And uh, right now the city is debating the Claremont Community Plan Update, which would add some density uh, around this area, around the stations. And if the city really wants to improve the transit experience, it would probably have to spend a lot of money uh, making changes to the streets that uh, get people to these stations. Uh, Some of those changes might also upset people. You might have to take away a lane uh, for cars and give it over to buses so that people can be whisked away in a rapid bus from Claremont or Pacific Beach to, to the trolley line. So I think there's a lot of potential and the seeds of a lot of success in this project, but it's just um, not all of those things have happened yet. Now, from your reporting, ridership on all of San Diego's trolley lines have gone through ups and downs. What are the main reasons you think that keep people away from using the trolley? 
The bottom line is that the trolley network doesn't go to or come to where a lot of people live or uh, where they're going, and that even when it does, cars are still faster most of the time. And so, you know, it's going to take um, probably some carrots and sticks. If you talk to any economist, they'll say, you know, you can subsidize uh, transit passes, you can build new lines and make it faster and better and everything, but without a stick to sort of nudge people out of their cars, uh, then, you know, the, the, the success, that can only take you so far. So, you know, if, if San Diego really wants to change, it's going to have to start seeing transit as uh, the, the option of first resort rather than last resort and make the changes to the infrastructure accordingly. I've been speaking with KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, have a good and safe trip. Enjoy yourself, okay? Thank you very much, Maureen. It's been a pleasure. Who's gotten a COVID booster shot in San Diego? Well, if you're older, white, and female, you are in the highest percentage of booster recipients. But if you're a 20-something black or Latino male, you probably haven't gotten that booster shot yet. The statistics released by San Diego County reveal wide gaps in booster vaccinations. Health officials are concerned that a lack of interest in getting boosters could result in an increase in COVID cases over the holidays. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune biotech reporter Jonathan Wilson. And Jonathan, welcome back to the program. Good to talk with you. Now, do the statistics on the booster rollout reflect what happened with the original vaccine rollout earlier this year? You know, they pretty much do. And and that's because if you think back to the vaccine rollout early this year and actually towards the end of, of last year, too, the people who first got an opportunity to get vaccinated were healthcare workers, folks who were living in nursing homes, working in nursing homes, and then from then on, uh, you know, seniors and progressively that opened up to everybody else. And when you take a look at the data that San Diego County released last week, you can see that the people who tend to have gotten a booster at this point uh, look a lot like that initial population. So about six out of every 10 people who've gotten a booster shot in the county are at least 60 years old or older. Uh, About two out of every three of them are white or Asian. So if you look at that data and take a a close peek at it, you'll see that the the people who have gotten boosters look a lot like some of the people who first got a chance to get vaccinated early this year. And that's not really surprising because the boosters are for people who uh, have already been vaccinated, you know, several months into the past at this point. Yeah, there have been a lot of mixed messages on who needs a booster shot and when. Can you give us the most recent guidance on boosters? Yeah, so it has been a little confusing. So what I can tell you based on what the state and county public health departments have said is that anyone who is fully vaccinated and got their second shot of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine at least six months ago is recommended to go ahead and get a booster. Uh, If you got the J&J vaccine, which is a one-shot vaccine, at least two months ago, uh, you can also go ahead and get a booster. And this is for people who are 18 years and up. And so that's the, the message, that's the guidance, that's actually a lot clearer than what the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention had originally said. The CDC has actually simplified that a bit to say that anybody can get a booster if enough time has passed 
And are the low numbers of Latinos getting booster shots surprising considering the success in overall vaccinations among that population? As you mentioned, the Latino population in San Diego has had actually a pretty successful vaccine rollout. And that has a lot to do with what community-based groups were doing, public health workers, trusted messengers, uh, as well as the county in terms of uh, setting up an infrastructure and, and building trust in the vaccines too. So if you look at the percent of people who are fully vaccinated by race, it actually looks uh, pretty good among Latinos and Hispanics, as high as the rate among Asians and a bit higher than the rate among uh, white residents. So the fact that that is not the case among people who've gotten a booster, uh, so basically 14% of people who've gotten a booster are Hispanic or Latino, uh, 53%, give or take, are uh, are white, uh, 13% Asian, 2.5% Black, and we can sort of go from there. So that was a little surprising. It might reflect to some degree that the vaccination rates among Latinos didn't really pick up until a few months into the vaccine rollout when all of these community-based efforts got off the ground. Uh, but it could also, you know, also reflect other things like general confusion around whether you could or couldn't get boosters. As you mentioned, there's been some mixed messaging there. Uh, it, it is a little bit surprising that those numbers aren't higher than, than what they are. In a companion article in today's UT, there's a report on the lagging percentage of Blacks and Native Americans in San Diego who have gotten any COVID vaccinations. It finds that just 46% of Blacks and 51% of Native Americans have begun the vaccination process. And the article says a lack of trust in government is to blame for the disparity. Is that also keeping the same populations away from boosters? I mean, basically, yes, because to get a booster, you have to have been fully vaccinated at least, you know, two months ago for the J&J vaccine or six months ago for Moderna or Pfizer. So to the extent that Black residents and Native American residents in the county are less likely to have been vaccinated to begin with, they're also less likely to be, you know, eligible to be getting boosters. So there's sort of a follow-on effect where, you know, people who weren't really reached by the initial vaccine rollout are at risk. And they're also continuing to be at risk too, because you know they are underrepresented among the, the folks that have gotten boosters. So that that's definitely some of the trust issues that were initially there uh, are having consequences as we go further and further into this pandemic. And the data shows there's a gap in people 80 and over getting their boosters. And that's a concern for health officials, isn't it? It is, because when you look at COVID data, and this has been pretty apparent since the very beginning, early 2020, uh, older adults have always been at highest risk. So, you know, upwards of 80, 85% of people who died of COVID-19 in this country have been at least 65 years old. Local data back that up as well. Many of the people who died in San Diego have been 80 and up. Uh, the fact that they don't represent as much of the booster recipient population as other groups of residents. So basically 12% of people who've gotten a booster are 80 and up uh, compared to 26% among people 70 to 79. And uh, you know people who are homebound, for example, and that often includes older residents are gonna be less likely to be able to go to a pharmacy or a healthcare provider or some other vaccine site. So that may be part of the issue. 
people who are in that situation can call 211 to have vaccine actually brought to them. Uh, but but we are seeing you know a bit of a concerning disparity in, in terms of age as well. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune biotech reporter Jonathan Wosen. Jonathan, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. An audit of the San Diego Regional Crime Laboratory has revealed major lapses in security and testing protocols over the past several years. The audit, which lasted nearly 18 months, underscores a number of key issues in the overall operation of the lab, issues that may even cast doubt on the credibility of evidence used in previous criminal cases. Joining me now with more is Greg Moran, who covers criminal justice and legal affairs for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Greg, welcome back to the program. Thanks. Good to be here. What was the reasoning for this audit in the first place? I think this was a uh, fairly routine audit that the Department of Justice, the Federal Department of Justice does to crime laboratories around the country that participate in a uh, very large uh, DNA database system called CODIS, which is kind of the major repository for information on people who've been arrested or or convicted for crimes around the country that uh, various police departments and sheriff's departments can kind of tap into to see if a DNA profile they have matches anybody who's been previously convicted. So the FBI wants to make sure that crime labs are uh, operating to the federal standards to participate in this program, and periodically they will go to labs and do an audit. What are some of the major red flags that auditors found? Well, this audit was conducted in 2018, and while they found a lot of compliance and good meeting of standards by the lab, they were troubled by one thing in particular, which is sort of the security aspect. Um, And in particular, they found that the San Diego Crime Lab really had poor control over who had access and who didn't to the lab itself. Mostly that was in the form of who had uh, sort of electronic uh, key cards, which is the way you get in and out of the lab. There was no apparently uh, a comprehensive or systematic way to keep track of who had these cards and who didn't. And when people who no longer had business at the lab, either private contractors who would do work once in a while or employees who worked there and then left, their key cards remained active for a very long time, in in one case, as long as 14 years. This raises questions about the security of the lab, who can get in and who cannot. And obviously, when you're dealing with evidence in criminal cases, that's a real concern. Why did this audit take so long to complete? They finished most of it, but this question about the key cards and the security just kind of lingered for a long time. The auditors said, look, here's our finding. You you don't uh, have a real tight control over this access point. Please uh, let us know how you're going to fix it and tell us. And either that information didn't get communicated to the auditors or they uh, got it and then didn't uh, inform the FBI and people. But uh, it was at least a year before... Um, The auditors uh, who had done this communicated again with the county, with the crime lab, and said, look, what have you done to reconcile or or to resolve this error? And then the county was able to kind of get them the information that said, this is what we're doing now. This is sort of our new process and things like that. But it just took a long time for people to kind of tie that one down. Have lab officials contested the findings at all? 
Not those. Um, they acknowledged, and I think they were kind of embarrassed, uh, if you sort of read their formal response, that they did not have a real good control over this. Now, in their defense, they said, look, this audit was done at what was the laboratory's old building. For many years, the lab was in a uh, small uh, building on Claremont Mesa Boulevard. And then in late 2018, they moved into this brand new $100 million, five-story building on the county campus. And part of their response was, when we get into that new building, you know, we'll have new security procedures. The old key cards won't work anymore. You know, we'll really tie it down. But yeah, they didn't contest the fact that they had not kept a very good track at all of those key cards and who could get in and who could get out. What does this audit say about the overall quality control at the San Diego Crime Lab? Is this indicative of further issues that could be going on? Well, they didn't go that far. The auditors did not go that far. This is pretty uh, narrowly uh, focused, you know, review of procedures. But this audit, taken in the context of other records and documents, some previous audits and assessments that were done by other entities, some information that has come out in court cases and stuff, shows that this is not an outlier. Let's say that, you know, the, the, the lab, it's become apparent, you know, on and off over the years has had problems with testing results, with this access kind of issue with personnel and things like that. And it's not widely known, you know, they're, they're a real key part of the criminal justice system, but a lot of what happens in the lab and what comes out of there isn't heavily scrutinized. And this particular lapse in security seemed to be, to me at least, you know, a piece of a larger view of the lab that it uh, has had, you know, some rough patches over the years that it's unknown if it's affected any cases, but it's certainly a cause for concern. You know, I I talked to one expert who said, look, there's no lab in the country that's perfect, that doesn't have any findings or, or doesn't have any problems. But here, you know, the issue is kind of like, well, if these are the things that they're finding, what are the things that they could be missing? Do these problems present any issues for the lab's inclusion into the larger FBI database? No. That, and that's a great question. No, they were they were still able to retain their accreditation and their approval to participate in this. I mean, overall, I think that the audits here by the federal government found that, you know, generally they were complying with most of the requirements to participate in it. And they certainly haven't been, you know, suspended or, or taken out of the system. They can still access CODIS. So no, they're, they're still part of it. Um, I just think it was kind of, as, as you said, these were kind of red flags that you wanted to kind of send up and say, hey, you know, you really need to kind of tie this down. So is there the chance that some of these issues raised here could cast doubt on evidence used in previous criminal cases? Well, that's really the the question, isn't it? Uh, and and I, unfortunately, I don't have a great answer. So, uh, I, I mean, you know, a lot of the things that, I mean, this audit was three years ago. I reviewed and read through other audits that are as long as 15 or 20 years ago. Um, so, it, it, but at this point, I don't know of any case other than uh, there's a, a case pending up in uh, North County, which kind of began to reveal a lot of the problems with the labs. But I don't know of any case right now where somebody said, hey, you know, I want somebody to take a look at my case because it could have been affected by these kinds of lapses or errors or mistakes. However, that's not to say that there isn't one out there. It's um, kind of a, I don't know any of the defense lawyers who are pushing forward in the DA's office isn't really moving to to go and review a lot of cases that either individual criminalists whose work may have been, has been uh, subject to scrutiny 
or overall processes of the lab have affected. They're kind of leaving it in the hands of the defense lawyers who kind of say, well, it was a long time ago. We don't know what criminalist worked on our case or things like that. I've been speaking with Greg Moran, who covers criminal justice and legal affairs for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Greg, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Universal Preschool is coming to California in 2025, yet not everyone is celebrating. In fact, some believe that Universal Preschool could have disastrous consequences for child care centers and families seeking early care, with the impact falling hardest on communities of color. With a closer look, here's Deepa Fernandez reporting for the California Report. Many people are excited about California's new law that will bring free preschool to all the state's four-year-olds by 2025. This action, Universal TK, is the biggest thing we've ever done in California for our youngest learners. Assemblymember Kevin McCarty is the architect of the $2.7 billion Universal program. This is a game changer. The program will provide free preschool through the public school system's newest grade transitional kindergarten, or TK. But Makia Ward is not celebrating. Ward runs five early education centers, like this one in San Leandro. She's really worried that the state's newly minted Universal Transitional Kindergarten Plan will siphon off all her four-year-olds. It will be difficult for us if we no longer are able to serve four-year-olds, and that's because we depend on those tuitions in order to pay for the expense of the younger children. In California, childcare centers are required by law to have one adult present for every four kids under two, while for four-year-olds, the ratio is one adult for every 12 kids. Dave Espen, executive director of California Quality Early Learning, says this means... You take a loss on infants and toddlers, and you make a marginal gain on the four- and five-year-olds. Losing the fees from older children will cut into the small padding preschools have to help cover the more expensive care of children under two. So many providers will close forever in the coming years. Those that don't close will need to raise infant and toddler tuition to survive, which will be completely unaffordable to even more families. So parents might win by having free preschool for their four-year-old, but it could mean less available care for the very youngest. I'm really worried that the state of early childhood education is going to be catastrophically miserable in about five years. Jennifer Carter runs two preschools in Southern California. A lot of black and brown women are going to be out of work. The early childhood workforce is overwhelmingly women of colour, and many won't have the required credentials to teach TK in the public school system. There are also worries about the overly harsh disciplining of black preschoolers for behaviours that are normal for four-year-olds, says Keisha Nzewi, Director of Public Policy at the California Childcare Resource and Referral Network. My concern is starting the school-to-prison pipeline even earlier because behaviours that are age-appropriate are not going to be tolerated on a public school campus. The Civil Rights Group Advancement Project California wants the universal plan to be equitable to California's many children of colour. Senior Policy Director Khadija Alam acknowledges there are issues to still be resolved, and she believes there is a role for home childcares and small preschools. Honestly, I just don't see 
you know, school districts just taking on the whole responsibility of UTK on their own. Dave Espen of California Quality Early Learning suggests private providers be allowed to keep serving their four-year-olds, possibly contracted out by local school districts who will be receiving the funds to expand TK. Other states have implemented mixed delivery systems and included the entire childcare community to take part. But Assemblymember McCarty is opposed to the idea. You know, we don't contract out eighth grade and fifth grade and third grade, so I don't know how we're going to contract out a grade. Alarm of Advancement Project California is hopeful all the issues can be resolved. I think it's an opportunity for growth. It's an opportunity for partnerships. For the California Report, I'm Deepa Fernandez. You've likely seen electric scooters and bikes for rent somewhere around San Diego. You may have even taken one for a whirl. But did you know there's a permitting system in place that each operator needs to apply for? Midday Edition producer Emmeline Mohibi spoke with the city's Sustainability and Mobility Department director, Alyssa Muto, about how the city is going to start limiting the number of operators and e-devices in the city. Muto starts with the pros and cons of having these electric bikes and scooters for rent. So in the city of San Diego, we're really seeking to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions in line with our climate action plan by increasing mobility options, um, mobility options that are green and sustainable, low carbon emitting, and that provide convenient and safe options for people to move around, whether it be for work or for pleasure, or just running down to the store. Like many new mobility technologies or devices, there is a learning curve for the users. And working with our scooter operators to provide for educational information to users, to adjust speeds on devices for first-time users. Also with the number of scooters that are deployed, we can work with the operators to limit the amount of scooters around town and adjust the deployment to meet the demand and not exceed it. Now, operators like Bird, Wheels, and Lyft are ramping up their fleets with new devices and more of them. How will the city make sure there aren't too many e-bikes and scooters on the streets? Yes, so right now we are uh, moving forward with our first request for proposals for scooter operations within the city of San Diego. Previously, we have been under a permit process where our development services take in applications on a biannual basis, so that's in January and in June, from as many operators who are interested in operating in the city of San Diego for as many devices as they would like to deploy. Usually they make those decisions based on market demand and utilization. Under the RFP, we will limit the amount of operators from unlimited to two to four operators and a maximum number of scooters of 8,000 scooters within the city of San Diego. And currently, which companies of scooters and bikes are permitted in the city? Presently, we have six operators operating within the city of San Diego. We have Bird, Lyft, Lime, Link, Vio, and Wheels. And are they spread out or are they more clustered in certain areas? 
we tend to see scooter and bike deployment in specific areas of the city, usually where we have um, a lot of employment. So in the downtown area, as well as recreation along the beach areas from Ocean Beach up to La Jolla, and then in and around our universities. So near USD, UCSD, and San Diego State. Now, speaking of universities, scooters were previously banned on the SDSU campus, but they're now back. Can certain areas in the city, like on the SDSU campus, set their own rules for these scooters and bikes? San Diego State uh, University of California, San Diego, can both set their own rules on campus for how maybe they geofence or if they prohibit them on campus. However, the utilization of scooters within the city of San Diego originates in our permitting process as it's kind of difficult to restrict operations between the university property and the adjacent city property. Um, So we expect that if a scooter or bike operator is on a university campus that they are fully permitted within the city of San Diego. Why did the city decide to limit the number of companies of e-scooters and bikes? The city did a comprehensive analysis of over 35 cities across the nation to better understand what shared mobility device programs look in other cities, how we could learn from other practices, uh, where enforcement or operations or even technology um, is different than what we have here in the city of San Diego. So in the city of San Diego, we identified having two to four operators as being the optimal arrangement for our city to give us the opportunity to have competition in technology, in rates, as well as in equity programs, and then to provide for partnerships that will allow us to have better transparency and data management of the scooter operators citywide. We saw fewer scooters on the street during the pandemic, and we're now seeing them coming back again. Do you foresee demand for e-scooters and e-bikes increasing going forward? Yes, we definitely saw a contraction of operations, um, both from users and from the scooter operators. But we've also seen that demand jump right back where it was before the pandemic. And I anticipate, given the popularity and demand for e-bikes in the marketplace, personal e-bikes, that we will continue to see the demand increase as we start to see a mixed fleet of bikes and scooters and other mobility technology. That was Alyssa Muto, the City of San Diego's Sustainability and Mobility Department Director, speaking with Midday Edition producer Emelyn Mohibi. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Comic-Con Special Edition happens in person this Friday through Sunday. The event focuses on comics and pop culture. So to kick things off this week, KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando wanted to talk to a comic book store to find out how it's been impacted by the pandemic. She speaks with Lucky Bronson of Kamikaze Comics on Claremont Mesa Boulevard in San Diego. So Lucky, I want to get a little background on Kamikaze. So give us a little 
<laughs> recent history on Kamikaze. Robert Scott was the original owner and he'd been in San Diego for almost 30 years. Created a community of comic lovers and in the end of 2019, December 2019, he passed uh, because of medical condition. After that, his wife Denise helped us keep the store around and, and going. And so we were kind of in survival mode into the beginning of 2020. We closed down our uh, Point Loma store and uh, then the pandemic hit, which turned out to be a good thing for us. At least the shutdown was. Um, it let us regroup, pull ourselves together as a store and, and kind of bounce back because we didn't have to deal with new product and paying for new product constantly. And we could focus on selling with the product we have, which is a lot of stuff. It was interesting going through that transition and into um, the pandemic or the shutdown, I should say, because, you know, like when everything's going well, you can talk about community and we're a big community. But when faced with possibly closing, our customers, our family and friends, they stepped up and started, you know, buying stuff and keeping us open. And that's when you know you're part of the community is when you're at your lowest and people show up and, and help us stay open. And so, so yeah, because of what Robert built as far as a community in San Diego with Kamikaze, it, allow us, it allowed us to survive the pandemic because people wanted us to stay around because they recognized that we were uh, important to them in their day-to-day -day and their, in their lives and stuff like that. Now, for a bookstore that specializes in comics, you guys do have something that probably helped you during the pandemic, which is people do anticipate certain things coming out on a regular basis. So was that part of what um, helped keep you going with some of the orders and mail orders for you know weekly comics? No. <laughs> and the reason for that is because our main distributor, Diamond Comics, completely shut down and they said they were not shipping any new product uh, until the lockdown was over. And I'm sure a lot of that had to do with staffing issues on, on their end, um, which caused a really big disruption to uh, the comic industry as a whole because they were the main distributor for Marvel, Marvel Comics, DC Comics, Image Comics, uh, basically everything that we needed to be at, to run as a store. And so so that was a wake up call for for Diamond and for the industry as a whole. And what was interesting in that time was that DC Comics decided to uh, end their contract with Diamond and go to another distributor. And so the shutdown caused a lot of disruption, a lot of a lot of comic a lot of the comic industry had to uh, recalibrate and kind of figure out how they're going to survive and so so did we as a, as a local store yeah so we had to deal with a lot of disruption and a lot of rethinking of what the comic industry was going to be uh, at least on the retail level it was always like the the companies with the least amount of resources were the ones that stepped up the most to try to help the stores for instance uh robert kirkman's company skybound uh he you know also created walking dead and invincible they they published a comic sent it to us for free, a new Walking Dead story that no one expected, published it for free, sent it to us for free so that we could sell it and, and you know, at, make some money while, while this whole thing was going on. How are things going now in terms of new product coming in and what you're able to actually offer to customers? Uh, it's starting to get back to normal. It feels like it's back to normal. 
our weekly people that come in Wednesday mornings are back in full force. But yeah, everything's, everything's back to normal, but we'll see because of the paper shortage, right? And supply chain issues. For us right now, our, our big issue is getting supplies. Like comics, collectors like to keep in bags and boards, right? To keep them protected and, and boxes that are designed for comics. It used to be that we can order, put in an order and get stuff within a couple of weeks. Now we're waiting up to four to five months before we can see that product in. So with something like a paper shortage, what kind of problems do you foresee that that could have on you? Is this something where your you know, publishers aren't able to print or aren't able to do reprints? How does that uh, affect them? I mean, after they announced the, uh, short, the paper shortage, publishers decided or they announced that they weren't going to do second printings. I mean, right now it's a wait and see what's going to happen, but what we're anticipating or what we're hoping for is that the publishers take a minute and reevaluate how they've been publishing comics. And what I mean by that is, for instance, Marvel and DC will do variant covers, right? So the interior is the same, but they put a different artist on the cover to entice people to either spend more or buy two copies of the same book. So the market has narrowed down to people who can afford comics as opposed to just being a disposable entertainment. So what I'm hoping is publishers stop and go and figure out what's important for them to publish and what we can sell. And at this point, what are you seeing as kind of the biggest challenges to you know, keeping the business running? Challenges for us is dealing with these companies and because they don't always, they don't always listen. Like some of them treat us as employees as opposed to partners. So the frustration that's, I think it's been around for a while is these companies don't want to spend any money on advertising to bring in new customers. They keep advertising to the people that come into the stores. So the pie is going to keep shrinking the more you know, the higher the prices on the comics go. So that, that's part of our frustration. Otherwise, as a store, it's just, you know, paying the bills and, and keeping the store open and keep a product on the shelves, um, stuff like that. You know, you talk about trying to get some of these publishers and companies to recognize the needs that a comic book store has. So do you have an ability to work with other comic book store owners to kind of increase your notice or increase your ability to kind of uh, get your needs known to these larger publishers? Yes. There's, there's a couple of forums, there's a couple of Facebook forums that allow comic shop owners just to communicate with each other and let each other know what's going on. And what's interesting is that a lot of that, I think, I believe, came from something that Robert did, Robert Scott did, the original owner, which was create a, he created a forum called the CBIA, which allowed uh, retail, well, retailers, publishers, and creators to communicate, right? Because for a long time before the internet, it was just what you knew locally and whatever they got in the fax machine. But now, because of uh, the changes in technology, because of Facebook, yeah, we communicate with other retailers and we see what's bothering them, what product comes out that doesn't sell or sells, and we see where, where the communication seems to break down between retailers and publishers. Um, but yeah, keep, uh, there are avenues for uh, retailers to communicate with each other. All right, well, I want to thank you very much for talking about Kamikaze and comic books. Oh, thanks for having me. <laughs> that was Beth Accomando speaking with Lucky Bronson of Kamikaze Comics located on Claremont Mesa Boulevard in San Diego.
KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.